you have reached a phone call from Paul. A Literary Hub podcast. To hear more, visit lithub.com. Part 1 of Paul Holden Graber's Conversation with William Gibson. You feel that the, the world, in a way, is weirder than anything you really could even write about. Well, simultaneously, it, it weirder, weirder in a sense, but also somehow more banal and uninteresting. It, it isn't uh, the 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 world's the world's screenwriter is currently, I think, a very poor screenwriter. <laughs> Like it's a badly written. It feels like a badly written universe, badly scripted at this point. But at least the you know the the reality isn't really the best stuff of fiction, and this seems to be a, a lately a, a, a very poor, even by the standards of reality. You you were saying a moment ago, Bill, that that um, the state of the world. It seemed to me that I hear you say that the state of the world, in some way, is keeping you from from writing, is nearly incapacitating you from from doing what you do. How how does that function? Is there is there a, a relationship between? The bad screenwriter of of reality now and the inspiration you need. I mean, do you, what what condi- I guess another way of putting it: under what conditions are you are you are you most inspired to write? Well, it, it is that um, it isn't that I would want to to particularly be working in a better time but I suspect that the the nature of what I particularly do in in fiction has something has something to do with taking some sort of measurement of the zeitgeist yeah at at the the time of time of writing and writing somehow slightly to to the side of that and it's a, a way there is some way I have but I don't really understand of finding at least for myself uh, a place of resonance around my most generalized sense of how the world how the world is and I need to find that in in order to to function and at the, the, the current the current situation seems to have a an element of of goofy incoherence 
to it that makes it more than usually difficult to to find the the um, complement <clears throat> to find its complementary resonance. I, I was wondering this morning who I've read who I think might be be able to find it, and I thought of Terry Southern. Oh yes, and I yeah, think you know just such a <laughs> such a wonderful grasp of of the banality of the truly horrible, and a strange, strange, deeply black. Really, you know, quite quite unique sense of humor. I, I think he could he would be right on it. What 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 was it a, a book in particular of his that you were remembering? And and do you in in these what a goofy and maybe dark times? Do you find that the reading of books that describe the situation we're living in are helpful? Well. I, I don't because I'm I'm writing. I'm in the middle of of my writing process now, and when I'm doing when I'm doing that, I I'm able to read very little fiction. So whether it's new fiction for me or old old favorites, because the enjoyment. Enjoyment of fiction and the creation of it, uh, it seems to me to take place in the same part of the mind, so much the same part of the mind, that if the part of the day in which I'm not writing fiction is, has anything else going on, it, it's probably not going to be reading fiction. Uh, when I'm writing fiction, I, I tend to read Nonfiction, and actually, which brings me to asking you. I thought this morning. I thought, what could I ask Paul? And I thought, have have you read Luke Sante's The Other Paris? You know, I have not But, yet. Or have have you read? Luke Sante. I, I I have read. Never discussed him. Yes, well, we haven't discussed him. I've read him a little bit, but I can't say that I know his work well. Are there books of his you particularly recommend? Well, uh, until until I began the other Paris, which I've not yet not yet finished, I would have. Immediately said his his history of New York low life, which is a as histories of New York go, it's a very slender volume indeed. But I honestly didn't get New York until I read Low Life, and that was hmm, in the. Yeah. It completely changed changed my my sense of what New York is and what it had been. It's just completely paradigm shifting shifting amazing really an amazing book. 
I'm beginning to suspect that as I read The Other Paris, that The Other Paris is at least on that level and that it isn't. One thing that's quite evident about it from the start is that it's in no way exclusively about Paris. It's about the experience of urban life of, uh, over the past however many hundred hundred years, and so it's, it's really about what's happening. What's happening in Paris is happening everywhere else, but you know at different rates of speed. You know, it it, it reminds me of of just about the first conversation you and I had. Be, be, before we we actually spoke on on stage, is you were telling me of, of all these these books that had mattered to you so much uh, about uh, the underbelly of cities, the underbelly of Dickens' London. I can't remember the reference to the London book. You will remember, of course. And you you it seems to be the kind of book that that you you gravitate towards, Bill. It 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 actually does, although I do, I mean I agree, but it doesn't. There's so few of so few of those books that it's never really felt to me that it's a it's a genre. It's you know it's a it's a tiny tiny it's a tiny tiny shelf indeed. The one you were thinking of is called the. Victorian Underworld by Kello Chesney. Yes, yes, yes. It's still in print. Yes, or, or, or sufficiently in print that you could you can get you could get a get a hold of it, and is still a remarkable, still a remarkable book. What I would suspect now that I've actually been doing with those, doing with those books is using. Using the history of of city, the unofficial history of cities, as a kind of, of more convenient yardstick for the rest of our histories, as as though cities are humanity speeded up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. With the with the brakes off, and so that we could, you know, it's kind of a kind of uh, it gives you a kind of stop motion view of what we're what we're doing. I think it's it's much easier to anticipate the future in cities, or perhaps it's much easier to enjoy the seeming anticipation of the future from the point of view of a city. And when you say seeming uh, enjoyment of the future, are you are you um, deliberately using that word seeming because of what we mentioned earlier, the the kind of goofiness and 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 seeming madness we're living through? Yeah, well, yes. It, it, I'm um, ever ever reluctant to to take our our predictive narratives totally totally seriously because i i think that you know in spite of our 
best efforts at prediction, I think that our self-regard defeats us in in the end. That we tend to, in spite of ourselves, we we imagine relatively heroic outcomes. And no one wants no, no one wants a, wants a prophet standing on the corner saying that everything is going to be hideously stupid and and banal. Yeah, and, and utterly atrocious. Yeah, uh, utterly, yeah. utterly atrocious, and and that that's just the that's just the nature of things. It 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 lacks even the the uh, well the appeal of the apocalypse is is it's it's closure and a sort of clarity yes the world is the world is ending and yeah it's kind of a banner one can get behind in a way and it's it's opposite is this is kind of um willy-nilly nihilistic uh, absurdist uh, narrative that that you know what one can one can feel lately that, that one is living in and and do you do you i mean that acceleration you were talking about in in cities i know i'm i'm reaching you in your your Probably your fairly quiet city of Vancouver. Yes, it, it, it's relatively relatively quiet at the at the moment. But you're reaching me. You're reaching me through one of a number of post-urban constructs that humanity's erected in the past hundred hundred or so years uh, so we are in a we're in a common we're in a common city with uh, San Bernardino say it's 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 a virtual it's a virtual space you, you, but it's, even in in one could one could live in a very rural setting and arrange one's life in such a way that that one was completely plugged into every major city in the world and had no idea that there were trees and birds just on the other side other side of the wall that wasn't previously possible you know that's relatively that's the last century or so. Yeah, and and you know, I was I was reflecting on 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 the fact that uh, we we are never unplugged, and we you and I now are having a, a conversation on a phone, which was also virtually impossible. I don't know exactly when the phone was invented, but it is probably. A hundred and fifty years or so. Yeah, I would say. I, I would say. And initially, the I, I've seen uh, engraved steel engravings of <clears throat> artists 
imagining of a, a, a transatlantic telephone call. Yeah. Which was, imagine this an extremely yeah. dramatic event. Which yeah. A man and woman in evening clothes on opposite sides of the page, uh, conversing between Paris and New York, uh, and it was—it certainly wasn't imagined as, as anything at all, at all casual, or that one would indeed scarcely be aware of. Right, you know that that you. One of the people who describes the phone in 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 such an extraordinary way is is Proust in in uh, Remembrance of Things Past has a whole passage about the the drama of the phone call and that when you reach somebody by phone, what you hear is not only them speaking. But in those days, you would hear the birds behind them and the clock from the cathedral nearby. And for him, this was, of course, highly evocative because you were able, through this instrument, to live vicariously a life lived far away from from the instrument you were using. Well, that's fascinating, actually. No, I'm... I'm I have relatively little, little proust, although I have bits now because our daughter is is reading all of all of his vast vast work, but she's doing it as audio books. Really. Yes, and she finds that the the optimal way. She takes him with her everywhere she goes, and she listens in the car, and she listens around her house when she's here busily doing things. So sometimes as she's moving from room to room, I'll have these incredibly fine, brief, evocative, completely random <laughs> passages of Proust floating, floating. And I, I've been quite, been quite enjoying it. How old is she? Oh, she's almost thirty. And oh my goodness, it's it's must be so extraordinary to 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 hear Proust, a kind of a nearly disembodied Proust, going around your home. And listening, well, I've forgotten the name of the the. I was going to ask actor who reads, who reads this series, but the the series has a, a cult, a cult following, and in in fact we've had to go, you know go far and wide on Abe Books and to Australia via eBay to find the different volumes of this thing and sometimes we have to buy them as audio cassettes for which she had to purchase a special device <laughs> yeah you, you have to go back in time to get them yeah, right? she's post cassettes so she had to go to this heritage platform to and so and we're still i think she's still looking for for several volumes so so it's been an it's been an interesting process but as for Proust on the phone and hearing hearing the birds and the clock, uh, I can only I can only imagine how extraordinary 
that would would have been in terms of of virtual reality. I think for Proust it would have been a more intense VR experience than it is now for me to to put on uh, whichever you know whichever brand of VR and see the have the very latest latest experience well i think i think it's so hard no i mean this poses a whole problem bill of how do does one get back to a a primary experience and um when when the experience is no longer no longer has that immediacy of something that that is being discovered whether it's a new technology or something else but I think for, for Proust, it had to do also with a, nearly a, kind of like a magical lantern. It was magical. It, it was, I think he, he speaks of les dames du téléphone, the, the ladies of the telephone who connect you to the other person you're calling. Yeah. And there was something that um, was magical and, and enchanted in it. Um, and and brought you you brought a whole part of another world close to you, and in a sense, I mean, I can't remember it well enough. Both of us will have to go and look probably online to get to read those pages, or maybe I will be able to find them. But I think, to to some extent, knowing Proust a little bit, it must have seemed not totally unlike the experience of reading which transposes you into a completely different space. Yes. No, I, 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 would, I, would, I, would think, I would think so. Reading, is, reading, we take so much for granted that we see it as, as free. We, we don't see it as a technological Stage, but in in fact, I I think it is. It's 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 our it was our first mass medium. We had been reading long before we were able to reproduce print. Long be long before you know we did read we read before Gutenberg, but we didn't read we didn't read in the same way and. We take the the fact of reading so much for granted when really it's this incredibly strange process where whereby I say cause marks to be made on on paper and that paper is then given to another person who looks at those marks and interprets them through a really incredibly culturally complex ritual uh, and has an experience that has something to do with the way in which I made the marks on the paper, but which I can in no way predict as is evident to me whenever I read reviews of my own work. <laughs> yeah.